You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal Or measure them all by box office appeal But for once in your life Be real! If you like classifieds movies, and if you have your own mic, if you're not into Schroeder, but it's Vygoth you like, if you like making pods at midnight in the room with no AC, then you're the partner I'm looking for. Be real with you and me. Noah. Holy shit. How we doing? We're so, I think we're off to a bang here on episode 199. Uh, be real. It's your movie reviewing, reappraising, genre hopping podcast on the Playlist Podcast Network. This is Be Real. I'm Chance Solomon Pfeiffer. I'm Noah Ballard. Noah, we're here to talk about uh, the fascinating, fun, weird world of I Found You in the Classifieds movies. Incredible. Our topical hook is that Terry Zvigoff's Ghost World turned 20 um, here in late july we decided to pair it with uh 1985's desperately seeking susan and uh 1992 single white female what a time what a world when you could just post things in the classifieds and change your life by hopping into someone else's i couldn't think of a movie where somebody like exchanges something on craigslist or a similar like this genre feels ripe for Facebook marketplaceification. Yeah, is it only that digital communication is so uncinematic that has killed this genre? But I feel like these movies don't... I mean, they are all connected by this narrative device, but they don't really spend a ton of time on, oh man, got to make time to read the personal <laughs> ads today. Well, you, you know, it just sort of happens incidentally. So you don't want to hear my 30-minute spiel about like the beauty of newsprint? Oh, I mean, if that's where you wanted to No, they spend very little time with uh, ink on their fingers. They're complete artifice to put two unlike people um, together. Um, I guess we could say, it's not really personal ads, though. Um, the shop around the corner, and then, of course, you've got mail, could maybe loosely fall into this category as well. Definitely. I know you have a story you want to bring up of the one and only time you connected with someone, however briefly, through... Connected with someone <laughs> in any form. <laughs> no, the only time... Well, you were texting me about how this is such a bizarre like, thing that people use to connect. Uh, and I was thinking, yeah, really the only memorable time that I ever sought anything out on the in the world was... It was like uh, somebody was selling a PlayStation 2. Yeah. Uh, this is what my summer after my junior year of college. And I was living in Lincoln, Nebraska. And you were around too, Chance. And that was the or, yo, you were just in, you were like in Omaha and you drove in the I Like Ike Ford Focus, Ford Taurus. Yeah, that was the summer I came to see you like twice a week. Yeah, and we went on a little road trip to Waverly, Nebraska, which is like not far from Lincoln, but it's not that close to where I was living. It's like 35 minutes, yeah. And we like went into this farm and bought, or I, I exchanged money for a PlayStation 2 and some games, some empty cases, too. <laughs> uh, from, a, from a proprietor who called himself Caveman Dave. Right. Desperately seeking Caveman Dave. Yes. Yeah, no, I couldn't actually believe that was a personal ad. I can't believe you didn't find that on Craigslist. But they, I mean, these still do exist in like the alt weekly I write for has like is kind of like the last refuge of like the classified ads. And you know, when you live in a when you live in a big city, you 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 do sometimes underestimate like there is this kind of last refuge of people who are truly technologically averse, but are like really regionally kind of bound to whom. I guess they could still be doing stuff in the personals, for all I know. They're certainly there. I think these movies all kind of hint at the fact that what draws people to the personals is sort of a desperation. The thing I found exciting is that these movies kind of like reawaken for you the idea that like 
any stranger could be just anybody like completely volatile. And I feel like the internet, when you're like constantly in the presence of strangers who you either think you understand or completely underestimate or just like, um, you know, right off in an instant, the classifieds and that, that hard barrier of the paper is, is kind of an interesting way to like get in this time machine to the mid eighties and early nineties and, and be like, you know, there's some full person on the other side of this, uh, no matter how disturbed and like the closer you get, the further away they may seem in some of these cases, or maybe they're just a oh complete my. monster in other cases. I don't know, man. Like these, these movies made me, um, made me feel pretty, pretty deeply about, uh, about some things. I'm excited to dive in. Wow. We always love when you feel deeply chance. <laughs> and the last funny coincidence I wanted to, to point out is that, um, we have some interesting, some interesting filmmakers on today's show with uh, Susan Seidelman and Terry Zweigoff and Barbette Schroeder, all of whom at various times were like definitely outsider artists. And these movies all kind of represent their, their brush or their assimilation um, to Hollywood. It's kind of like a real mixed bag, whether they like hightail it out of there or whether Hollywood kicks them out of there. Um, and that, that was just a funny resonance of them just sort of being like, uh, filmmaker seeking mainstream work, <laughs> maybe one time, <laughs> and then they kind of go back to being whoever they were before in some of these cases, which for some yeah, of them, the best, that's good. Um, where do you want to start, my friend? Desperately Seeking Susan, 1985, a bored New Jersey suburban housewife's fascination with a kooky character she's read about in the personal columns leads her to being mistaken for the woman herself. Nice. Do you think we need to include anything about like Egyptian jewels? I in I don't, the synopsis. Here, I don't or? think the movie gives a shit about that, so I really don't either. <laughs> yeah. When I rented this at Movie Madness, I'm now just telling you every week what the clerk at Movie Madness said when I rented the movie. And this one, he's just like, there's something very funny to me about the phrase Madonna is Susan, as though like Susan is the iconic <laughs> name. <laughs> It's like it's like God is played by or Steve is played by God. Exactly. <laughs> so I don't even know this guy's name. I, he's a very nice uh, person who knows a lot about movies, and he's made it onto the podcast two weeks in a row. Shouts to you. She's a woman of mystery. You can dig. You can dig. You can dig. A woman of surprises. What are you doing here? A woman named Susan. Come on, come on, come on. Orion Pictures presents Desperately Seeking Susan. Susan! 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 Oh my God, we all thought you were dead. Oh, just in New Jersey. Madonna is Susan. The hottest voice in rock is now the freshest face on film. Every man is desperate to have her. One woman is desperate to be her. Everybody I know is desperate, except you. I'm desperate. You? <laughs> but someone is desperate to kill her. Killed? Come on, come on. Dead? If he can figure out who she is. Come on, come on. I'm not Susan. I don't believe it. I'm a housewife and I live in Fort Lee, New Jersey. You never stop, do you? Starring Rosanna Arquette as Roberta. You know, Gary, between you and me. What do you really know about Roberta? She doesn't even like sex that much. It's impossible. She'll love it. You can dig. You can dig. And Madonna as Susan. No more dead bodies, okay? I'll see what I can do. Bye-bye, Bruce. It was fun, huh? My first thought about this movie is that the, and we've already kind of alluded to this, is that the plotting of it is super kooky and farcical, right? Um... I mean, it, it, it's one of these amnesia movies. We could have done it with uh, Memento if we were in a lighter mood and looking at a different era yeah, of filmmaking. Yeah, the Oops, I Bumped My Head films. Exactly. <laughs> it would pair nicely with Overboard. Um, if For we sure. wanted to do amnesia rom-coms instead of uh, amnesia meditative, auteur-driven <laughs> dark movies. Anyway, um, yeah, and it, it's a total like mistake of a case of mistaken identity where uh, Aiden Aiden Quinn and everybody who comes across Roberta in like the second act is just like, so you're this this crazy wild woman Susan we've heard so much about. Well, meanwhile, Su meanwhile Susan has been taken off screen for uh, uh, you know running on a cab fare. Um, right. And there's this. Can whole I make a? Go ahead. Sorry. 
Can I make a wild, like, analogy for this film? Sure. Do it. It's almost like if the film Cruising was a comedy. Mm-hmm. It's, like, very much in that New York. So even, like, hearing you describe it, it's, like, not the the vibe of watching this sort of like kind of movie. And that's what I'm trying to say. Then there's like this crazy plot line with like a mobster and stolen Egyptian earrings. And Will Patton is run podcast favorite. uh, Billiam Patton is running around um, looking like I have more questions about that in a second, but that is not the experience of watching this movie. The way Susan Seidelman makes this, who is fresh off um, being like a, a scenester post-punk New York um, kind of documentarium. The way she makes it is so like anthropological and um, like chill and profound at the same time. And she's really going out of her way to basically, um, I don't want to say smother because the movie does feel pretty light, but just leave all the high pitched comedy beats kind of like, they're only a way of getting to the next thing, kind of unremarked upon almost. Yeah, the movie's not paced very well, as I think what you're trying to say. Uh, no, that's not what I'm In that it say. doesn't know when to leave moments like for laughter. Like it's just like going, 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 but it's also like not going anywhere specific, I think. Like the, the things about the jewels is like very much just like the bracketing around this otherwise sort of aimless uh, sort of labyrinth movie of like being in the punk scene of the Lower East Side in 1985. Yeah, but I really admire the fact that it doesn't give over to these sort of like, what? Like moments as sort of like all these different people have their kind of fish out of water moments. Like there's this, my favorite one in the whole movie um, that just made me howl for like 15 seconds is when... uh, Roberta's husband Gary who's played by Mark Blum who's this sort of like boring but like locally successful philandering hot tub salesman has to go into um like this crazy performance art like basement um I don't know like almost like a speakeasy club or something like that and he has to like dance with Madonna in order to find out like where where Rosanna Arquette has gone. And there's this moment with, with like handheld camera that he is suddenly just dancing with this person who is entirely shaved. Uh, the camera just keeps moving. And it's like all of a sudden he, it's not that like, the joke is not that he is like met someone who weirds him out and, oh, they're going to weird you out too, audience. But it's just like he is fully enmeshed in this completely different world. And it's hilarious. Like how nobody in that world cares about him and he looks just as strange as anyone else in that club. It's an interesting movie too, going off what you were saying, just like the feeling of New York at this time, Mm -hmm. you know, and the way that they're able to shoot like Aiden Quinn's sort of empty apartment and like it's big and interesting looking and dirty and weird and like it's unclear at any given point like who lives places and who's just there like who works where and who's performing who's a patron you know who's a bartender it's all very sort of like in the in the blender together uh which is a cool vibe like this movie's got cool vibes don't don't get me wrong there but it goes for these like kind of cheapy things that I don't quite understand with its sort of punk rock sensibility. Whereas like you were just saying that, Oh, this husband's like dancing with Madonna. Like that's funny enough as an image, but like, do they have to be dancing to Madonna while Madonna is playing? Like that's a little. Sure. A, why would that Madonna song like be on in that space? A and B, like this universe exi- or this this world exists in a universe where it's not even like Madonna soundtrack over. It's not David Bowie and Labyrinth like doing a little like I'm singing, you know. Or it's not like a, a cue. It's they put on the juke they the they put on the jukebox Madonna. Mm-hmm. Like what did she? What did Madonna pick out? Like did Madonna pick out Madonna? Do you see what I'm saying? Of course, you don't care. I don't care that much about that. That may be a contractual thing. 
it just seemed like a for a movie that has such a like a punk rock sensibility right. it just feels like such a stupid like oh doesn't Tess kind of look like uh, Julia Roberts <laughs> you are on the record as truly hating that kind of self-awareness um I think we have to talk about this movie like in terms of identity and that's what I think like Susan Seidelman really nails about how it's sort of both profound and meaningless at the same time. Like it obviously changes Roberta's life in sort of a stereotypical kind of rom-com way or like she's the suburban housewife who like needs to fall in love with someone in the city or who will have her life awakened by falling in love with Aiden Quinn. And like, that's funny and great and very cliche. Um, but the, but mostly I don't think the movie cares about it that much, except in these really telling kind of cool little visual ways. Like when Roberta first lays eyes on Madonna and she has to take off her housewife glasses to look through the quarter binocular glasses. And it's like, in what way do you want to see the world? These lenses or these lenses? Or this joke at the end where they all end up at the magic club in Atlantic City and the waitress guesses everyone's drink order by how they're dressed. Like it's just a movie about costuming. Um, And at the end, they all run around in this crazy farcical way through a literal costume room and they settle this sort of silly plot about the Egyptian earrings and everyone sort of ends up either kicked to the curb or much happier. I I love the way in this sort of, and it's not an accident that it's someone who existed as a cipher like Madonna, just kind of picking stuff up along the way culturally as she went, is at the center of this movie. Like identity to this movie is, is entertainment. Um, and we look really silly when we, when we try to make too much sense of it, when we should just be happy and do what makes us feel good. And that message, uh, it carried me a long way. Wow. Clearly. Um, yeah, sure. I like the part where the magician just keeps getting fed up with how the, his assistant keeps deteriorating in quality. Though I think... Rosanna Arquette did seem like a better overall performer than the woman with the Coke bottle glasses. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. Um, Do you want to talk about how many supporting characters from Do the Right Thing are in this movie? Uh, John Turturro. Is Will Patton in uh, Do the Right Thing? (laughs) Yeah, he plays Mookie. No. Who are the others? Oh, Giancarlo Esposito. Is Rockets Red Glare? And do the right thing. He's the sunglasses guy. Nice. And then it's the other brother from the pizza shop plays the guy who tries to give Madonna a newspaper. Wow. It's three. That's enough to remark upon and then move on. I got to say, man, if you, I know you're really into the aesthetics of this movie and I applaud that on an aesthetic level, but I don't think I got the same like emotional thing that you did from this film. I, f- I found it kind of hard to get into and like the hokiness of the sort of stupid Hollywood plot that is put on this. I think it's an interesting place to be, but I think the Hollywood plot of it all, you know, Aiden Quinn's kind of a hunk, you know, but how many times does he have to say, what do you understand? No drama. Like, you know, how many times is he going to say that? I think he says it twice. You didn't You didn't find that, like, the sort of, like, little asides that we shamble into were really charming or else really hot? Like, that moment where he, like, stands up and the cat's watching the fish and he washes through the tank as Roberta pretending to be Susan is in the bathroom. Like, that's such a cool visual and kind of, like, just hot sort of moment. I, I have to say, I... I oh, it's a hot moment. There, Chance is always picking out those hot moments. Hot moments of the female gaze abound in this movie. I, I enjoyed. Incredible. I don't know. Maybe I wasn't in the right mindset for it. Um, unfortunately, I think for me, just just for me, you can you can say whatever you want, but for me, it's a bad bad. Wow. Uh, okay. It's a good good. I was gonna give it a good good. That's fine. I really liked it. Before we move off of Desperately Seeking Susan, I have to ask you, where does Will Patton rank in the pantheon of albino serial killers in film? Uh, somewhere below 
what's his name from Manhunter? Tom Noonan. Oh, he's above the main villain from Tomorrow Never Dies, the German guy that Jonathan Price hires to sure. run his security. Nice. Um, Mr. Stampa! What about between Paul Bettany in Da Vinci Code and Tobin Bell in The Firm? Oh, man. I think this is probably less than this is another podcast entirely. This is another, yeah, <laughs> Blonde Villains, part one. Patton, is, this is all to say Will Patton is extremely curious in this movie. Like, I just don't get movies like, like this and, like, 200 cigarettes and, like, all these, like, safe Hollywood movies set in otherwise, like, interesting urban spaces. Like, if you're going to make a movie like this, like, make After Hours. Like, do something on the narrative level that, like, justifies the cool aesthetics around it. All right, let's move on to... Are we going in chronological order? Not alphabetical. Great. So then we must be doing single white female. Single white female, 1992. A woman advertising for a new roommate finds that something very strange is going on with the tenant who decides to move in. In this city, on this street, in this apartment. Hi, are you Allison Jones? I'm Hedra Carlson. Hedra, that's unusual. When can you move in? An ad for a roommate brought a stranger into Allison's life. Someone. I look beautiful on you. Who shares. What's well, kind of fun having a girlfriend again? Someone. Do you guys know when you'll be back? Uh, no, it's kind of an anniversary tonight. Really? Who cares? Where the hell have you been? <gasps> Making me feel like I'm 16 years old here. Someone who borrows. I've got a surprise for you. You've got to be kidding. I love myself like this. It was like looking at myself. It was scary. Someone who steals. Hey, sleepy guy. Ellie? No, not Ellie. Someone who would kill to be her. Bridget Fonda uh, is the titular single white female to steal your line. Um... She kicks oh Stephen Weber, uh, her her wings his own Stephen Weber. The only thing I knew Stephen Weber from, and I'm sorry, we do have to do this aside. Is it the episode of uh, Party Down where he's the guy who's having fun? The end. <laughs> That's so funny. It's also interesting too. The he does a lot of audio books. I'm listening to this novel called Falling about a an airplane uh, hijacking. And he narrates it. Does he ever narrate, very well? Does he ever narrate them as Ricky Sargulish from Party Down? Sometimes he'll use an accent. Yeah. Okay. Cool. But yeah, so um, it, you know, he and Bridget Fonda are in this amazing uh, rent-controlled apartment. Is it off the park? Do you think? Yes, it's in this such a cool apartment. It has like this. The apartment itself has like a circular atrium uh, out of which the other rooms come. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's really cool. Uh, it's 73rd and Broadway. Taking everything I have not to make fun of you for being like, I like this movie better because Aiden Quinn's apartment was so dirty. <laughs> I, okay, well, one, yes. But two, at least like this this movie takes its time really like getting you oh, in the nooks God's and crannies sake. of what's broken in this apartment and like, what, like how the apartment is kind of a character in this overall story, whereas the other one was a little bit too too fluid. It moved around too much without going deep. A mile wide and an inch deep. That's what I say. Um, so Stephen Weber's cheating. In the opening five minutes, he's kicked out. Bridget Fonda playing a uh, fashion designer, Allison Jones, who's like invented fashion Photoshop for Steven Tobolowsky. That's her job. Um, she it's needs- Photoshop with like Excel. 
That's right. Yeah, she has bookkeeping because it allows you to do like invoicing too. Like after you print out the the InDesign of your dress, you like bill people on her software as well. It's really, but she's also a fashion person herself. Like she's in these fabulous outfits. Mm-hmm. Um, and she basically decides this place is too much space, a little too much money. Without somebody else, why don't I get a roommate? And we have our this film's one and only brush with the with the classified ads. Um, single white female seeking roommate and there's this miniature montage in a movie that otherwise does not have any like light montages <laughs> yes. where all these different women come by and they're all kind of too aggressive or too boring or um, this very butch woman wants to like tear out the cabinets and she won't do um, there's a, some of the women in the montage, like I didn't even understand necessarily what was the deal with them, like why they didn't fit. They were like, they were fashionistas or something. I, and that just, I'm not sure. that wouldn't do. I don't know. Anyway, Jennifer Jason Lee wanders in playing Hetty. The final, yeah, the final person to come as uh, Bridget Fonda's crying on the kitchen floor. And she's sort of uh, retiring and nice and helps her off the floor and, uh, very quickly, it just they they hit it off, and and she's the roommate. And she asks, "You won't be having uh, uh, Ricky Sargalish? Are we having fun yet? Moving back in here, will you?" And Bridget Fonda's like, "Absolutely not." And of course, that doesn't last. Just to be clear, Stephen Weber is playing like some mid-level executive He's in this n- of American. Not design. playing a one-eyed Russian mobster. He is okay. not. That's just chance taking liberties. I was trying to find ways to add dimensionality to this movie. Well, there's two kinds of men in this film. Uh, that Those with hair and those without hair. Uh, so it's either Steven Weber or Peter Friedman. I texted you about this. I'm going to reuse the joke. Yeah. If you don't have the money to cast Stanley Tucci, you better cast Peter Friedman. Peter Friedman, just fine in this movie. No, but this movie is like all about like once Jennifer Jason Lee and like casting her in this is brilliant because she brings with her like a moodiness. Like it's not like danger at first and it's not violence at first. It's just like kind of a dark cloud like comes over the otherwise cheeriness like of this Bridget Fonda world. And then I think the movie's really good at not like blowing it up to a thousand before it has to there's like the movie will give you like little hints that like oh did did jennifer jason lee like do something weird there did she like take a dress shouldn't she give that back kind of thing like oh you know she's starting to talk like bridget fonda now too and oh she's like always very defensive when like other people like come into their orbit like is that weird like before we get into the any of the animal uh torture uh she seems i don't know the 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 pot you're the frog in the pot slowly boiling yeah the only reason this movie can be an hour 47 and not an hour 28 is because jennifer jason lee's a great actor and they give her plenty to do i she is really good do you know do you think that she could be like iconic like glenn close iconic talking fatal attraction of course if this in the in the you know genre of thing from hell movies if the script could like make up its mind a little bit more about like what was this person's deal like i just found my being she's good at playing mastermind she's good at playing manic she's good at playing hysterical she's good at playing uh manipulative crusader she's good at playing supervillain she's good at all of this but at a, at a certain point it's a little super she's sort of superficially good because the script won't let her be great on one thing i don't think that is, yeah, minus one point for not giving this could-be-iconic villain the most seamless backstory, sure. I think, m- much like uh, Desperately Seeking Susan, we're like on, we seem to be on different pages here. Because I found this movie to be pretty, like, enjoyable. Like, certainly trashy. Sure. But... I, I, I had never seen this movie before, and I, like, was surprised by... Just its its thing, its ability to do 
the thing that it's set out to do. And what I like about this movie too is like the incident is small and the, the, the film's not afraid to sort of be contained. It's kind of like a predecessor, frankly, to Panic Room in that, you know, maybe they're not physically stuck in the apartment, but the production, it, it's Hitchcockian too, but like the production itself is very much focused on this apartment. Uh, and I kind of like that about it. It feels more theatrical that way. Uh, and it definitely pulled me in more on like a character level than the previous one did. I think Barbara Schroeder is a good director. I mean, he comes out of like the French seventies. I mean, he worked with like Godard. Um, and by the time he gets into this like Hollywood erotic thriller space, uh, you can, as I, you can accuse him, as I said earlier, of aping De Palma a little bit, but, um, yeah, how dare you? <laughs> you want? Are you about to? You want to do a? You thought Reversal of Fortune was a De Palma ape? That's not an erotic thriller. We've done that movie. That's a pretty good movie. Um, yeah. You know what I'd like to do? Is Murder by Numbers. Not today. Is Murder <laughs> by Numbers? That seems like a movie that's ripe for reappraisal. Sure. Seven. Murder by Numbers. Oh, all the numbers. Um, Murders by Numbers. Lucky Numbers. Slevin. I, that we found yes. it. Stop drilling. You've hit oil. <laughs> we should do seven movies. Yeah. Seven Samurai. Lucky number seven. No. You fucked up. Do you think they have a lot of connective DNA? Definitely. Well, according to the cinephiles I know, Seven Samurai has influenced everything, including Lucky Number Eleven. So, yeah, it feels it feels like an Adrian Lyne movie. It feels like a lot of like French erotic thrillers. It's it's very well, it's well made. Um, it's Verhoeven-esque. No, it's not though, because Verhoeven... Yes. No, Verhoeven, this is... The, yes. This is the, this is the biggest problem with the movie, is that this movie could so easily get more fucked up and more embroiled, and it has to... This is, I guess I'm just making your criticisms the last movie, and it stays so safe. Like, it has to kill Steven Weber to get him out of the movie because it can't figure out what to do with the actual like kind of infidelity plotline or like how Bridget Fonda would respond to that. It has to whack Paul Friedman on the head to keep him, keep him sedated until it comes up with a plot point. Think, think about this. What would Paul Verhoeven do with the scene at the end where Steven Tobolowsky, whose character has uh, attempted to sexually assault Bridget Fonda's character and he all of a sudden becomes her like potential rescuer, straddling her on the floor to untie her from Jennifer Jason Lee's bondage. Verhoeven would relish in making that the most complicated, fucked up thing you could possibly imagine, where like a potential well, I mean, what would somebody who was a potential rapist do with like the woman he felt had wronged him, but he was maybe also like her liberator? Like, that would be such a morass of like what the hell do you do with this that you're throwing in the audience's lap? And this movie makes it as simple as possible where he throws Jennifer Jason Lee and Bridget Fonda's like, what happened to her? And he's like, I took care of her. And then he gets whacked on the head. It's, it takes the easiest way out at... Classic male it hubris. It takes the easiest way out at every possible turn. I think the... It's ability to kind of... Especially for the time period when you have, like, in a couple years, you'll have friends come out where for that two or three year period, like, everybody has, you know, the Rachel haircut. Like, this movie kind of presages the creepiness of, you know, this woman who's just, like, trying to fit in with another female archetype in her in her space by getting the same haircut. Like, I think that that visually and on a narrative level is such a fascinating, like, way to look at, like, what the 90s woman would come to represent and how one kind of assimilates. Mm-hmm. It's like a vertigo riff. The The thing with the... What do we think about this haircut, though? Isn't it kind of like Demi Moore in Ghost, but, like, not cute? Well, it's, it's, yeah, it's Ginger Demi Moore. Yeah. It is funny when Jennifer Jason Lee like, reveals the same haircut, but, like, she doesn't... Uh, Jennifer Jason Lee is, is, is very beautiful, but does not have the same kind of features as Bridget Fonda, so she kind of just looks like a little cartoon leprechaun when she gets the haircut, I think. <laughs> it 
the side, the fake sideburns, you know? Well, yeah, exactly. But I think there's something funny about that. And like the movie's kind of like irreverent in that way to give such a specific haircut to a, such a specific face. And then, I mean, they knew when they casted Jennifer Jason Lee that like she would look silly with that, with that haircut. Like, but that's a choice, you know? And I think that that kind of speaks to her you know, slow alienation here. Cause I don't know. I find something about Jennifer Jason Lee to be oddly sympathetic. You know, if you think if you put yourself around the right people and you wear the right clothes and you have X amount of money that like you'll fit in enough to find this thing called happiness, you know, you'll find the guy. I mean, she even has that great monologue of like, you'll always find your next person. Like I'm the one who's not going to find that connection outside of our friendship. Uh, And I think for people of a certain age, myself on the, you know, the other side of 30 here, like it is difficult to, to like make new friends. Like I wouldn't want to like think about uprooting my life if something horrible were to happen like in my home world like i i that's i would probably end up like jennifer jason lee she, one of her the acting notes that makes her really sympathetic is she's great at playing uh kind of childish there are moments in the movie where she feels like she you know she's sitting on the floor in a nightgown and she feels like she's 12 years old and she's laughing about this call that she put into tobolowski and she's like, I bet he pissed his PJs. She feels like she's a 12-year-old making a prank phone call at a sleepover. And then, you know, 20 minutes after that, she says to Bridget, Wa- Bridget Fonda, you're fucking weak. Um, she's a great deliverer of lines. I mean, she's, she's an awesome performer. Um, I'm going to give this one... I feel like my rating on this one is sort of odd. Um, it seems like a bad good, but I'm actually going to give it a good bad. I think it's perfectly serviceable as one of these things from hell movies in the lineage of fatal attraction and hand that rocks the cradle the roommate with Leighton meester which we have we have an inside joke about is like the exact same movie i mean it, it is absolutely setting it, it's crystallizing the playbook of what you know 20 years of movies up to and including dennis quaid's the intruder will be after this um but it's for me personally, it's actually kind of awkward to watch. Maybe it would be like uproarious in a theater, but just by myself, it's like you're gonna all. I'm just gonna Not watch. Uproarious. I'm just gonna watch this relationship fall apart because this person is some sort of fake mentally ill, and then at the end, somebody's gonna get stabbed with some sort of sharp object that was previously alluded to. <laughs> but it's perfectly fine. I'm gonna give it a good bad. What is the roommate joke that we have? Silence, you harlot. Oh, yeah. Because Billy Zane's in the roommate. Because Billy Zane's in it. <laughs> he, plays a, he plays a directing teacher, an acting teacher. What's a directing teacher? Of course he does. I think this movie is a good good. I think it's a pretty taut, erotic thriller. I don't know. This one was like a lot of fun. This is like a brunch movie uh, for Lucy and I. And... I had my breakfast tacos in front of me, and I just had a rollicking, uproarious good time uh, yeah. seeing think... this thing. And you know you know that Lucy loves a house movie, uh, and this is like an apartment movie, so it's similar to that. She loves the real estate aspect of it. Uh, but yeah, something about it felt genuine, too. The idea that like if you turn on the water the wrong way, the, the water will like splash up and hit you in the head. You know, and like everything is kind of like cool but dirty. You know, that's just the it captured the the lifestyle for me, uh, and I felt seen. I also I felt seen also uh, as an adult. You know, always trying to make new friends and struggling to do so. Uh, so yeah, that's it. I'm open to that, but why don't I think we may finally? Bond Are we up. friends after these first two episodes or first two movies? Who knows? But maybe. Maybe Ghost World. How attached are you to Sarah? Is it just you and me? Moderately. Are we going to fight about Ghost World or are we going to bond at the end here? God, I hope it's the latter. I'd love to bond. Uh, 2001, Ghost World. With only the plan of moving in together after high school, two unusually devious friends seek direction in life. As a mere gag... 
they respond to a man's newspaper ad for a date, only to find it will greatly complicate their lives. It's an admirable way of summing up a Terry Zwigoff movie. Yeah. The two friends are Did you ever read this comic book? No, did you? No, I didn't know it was a comic book until I saw Based on the Comic Book by Daniel Close. It kind of makes sense, though. I mean, it has that... Zweigoff has that, like, Harvey Picar, like, just total black-hearted, alienated comedy. Although, that would actually, I would, I take that back. I wouldn't say this movie is black-hearted. The movie is not. But it depicts a world that is beyond alienating. And Zweigoff had already done that Crumb Doc, that Robert Crumb Doc. And he's yeah. got that kind of, it's almost like, yeah, it's a little bit like Far Side, a little bit like Harvey P. Carr. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's absurdist, but like in a very humane and empathetic way, I would say. Like right. even the least likable characters in this movie and any of his movies are somewhat likable. I would agree. Like, it's almost like a challenge of, can I make a movie where middle-aged Steve Buscemi sleeps with 18-year-old Thora Birch in it and make it not creepy? Hey, hey, what do you think you're doing? Shut up that damn noise! Rock and roll, baby! Freedom of speech! <laughs> that guy rules! They can't believe we made it. We graduated high school. How totally amazing. I can't help but feel I had some small part in how you turned out. <sighs> Sometimes I think I might be going crazy from sexual frustration. You just hate every single guy in the face of the earth. That's not true. I just hate all these extroverted, pseudo-bohemian losers. You guys up for some reggae tonight? Do you have any other old records besides these? Seymour does. Who does? Oh, uh, him. He's the man with the records. What, are we in slow motion here? Come on, what are you, hypnotized? Have some more kids, why don't you? Jan pehchan ho. Jina asan ho. I'm allowed to place one student from your graduating class for a full one-year scholarship, and I took the liberty of submitting your name. This could be a really great thing for you. Would I have to take classes and stuff? <laughs> well... I'm just not the kind of guy who has a type. Every guy has a type. What about her? Whoa. Would you go out with her? As long as she's breathing. Uh, so the two friends are Thor Birch, um, American Beauty, Fame. What else? Anything else for Thor Birch? Do you have a quintessential Birch role yourself? She had a pretty interesting... Did you listen to her, Mark Marin? No, I can't say I did. Yeah, she definitely regrets being a childhood actor. Sure. I don't know if Scar Jo rejects being or regrets being a childhood actor. I think it's gone pretty well for her. It's gone incredibly well. You a big Black Widow guy? I loved it. Speaking of, did uh, you see Ricky, it? I haven't seen it. Speaking of Ricky Sargolish accents. <laughs> uh, no, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen. I haven't seen Marvel movies. Okay. You're holding out for uh, Matt Damon in Stillwater? I'm holding out for a hero, a real hero. And Kevin Feige can interpret what I mean by that. Um, So these two, freshly graduated from high school, there's some great kind of high school graduation shit talk where they're making fun of um, this girl who... (laughs) The valedictorian is 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 paralyzed from a drunk driving accident and gives this sort of very corny speech about learning from it. And they're both like, two weeks ago she was she was blitzed and now she's so great. Like it's it's the perfect snarky high school. There's a lot of really kind of wise snarky high schooler um, speak where very quickly Zvigov is able to show. Um, well, I don't know. It just really spoke to me in that kind of 19 to 20 year old vernacular where like you're trying so hard to know things and know cultural references. And to be honest with you, Noah, this is kind of like where you and I encountered each other at like ages 19 and 21 respectively. And if a person is 
two years older than you. They know like 10 more things and they can just absolutely destroy <laughs> your ability to like speak or like hold a, hold a conversation. Like whenever they encounter like other people, they're like, are you accusing me of being your Steve Buscemi? No, 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 no. I'm just accusing you of being like some of the other people they run into who are like punks over man. And you were the kind of person who, who could have been like, I was like, take off that train hat. You look like Sidney Lauper. Take <laughs> off that train hat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you could argue, why was I wearing the train hat? But I would argue, no one knew a Cindy Lauper reference, and it destroyed my weekend. <laughs> Did or I really maybe, say that to you? Maybe a, no. You would have said like a Dexy's Midnight Runners. Take off that train hat. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. And then we started a podcast. Yeah. No, there's like a, this movie is very wise in like how different like generations of people try to connect with one another. And then also, while also like putting sort of a a parallel plane out there about when people stop getting older. And this movie kind of supposes that depending on like what cultural artifacts you become like the historian of, that's kind of when you stop uh, so mm. it's really a movie about like people who collect weird shit, you know, and and even the kids too were like in their own ways, kind of like collecting aesthetics. Um, you know, Thora Birch, you know, kind of has this thing where uh, she was born too late or something, and she's trying to kind of like keep alive the the mid seventies uh, like punk aesthetic, and then she just kind of collects people who collect things. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a pretty wise film, I would say, in its look at the continuum of of growing or not growing or like, you know, suspended uh, arrested development. I, my superficial defini- definition of the title is that the ghost world is just like adulthood. It's the real world. It's that, you know, you spend your entire adolescence being like, you don't get to tell me who to be. Fuck off. And then as soon as people stop telling you who to be, the um, the existential dread sets in of like, wait, I could be anyone and I'll more than likely be no one. That seems like the ghost world to me. Interesting. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think it may have like a bigger read on it too, because I'm, I'm now trying to figure out. So there's this motif that comes up a couple of times with this old man sitting at a bus station yeah. Um, he's sitting at a, like a bench where a bus stop used to be and Thora Birch is trying to dissuade him from continuing to sit there saying that the, the line doesn't stop there anymore. Like it got canceled two years ago and he's like, fuck off. Like I, you're, you're not, you're wrong. Yeah. Uh, and he's just there every time they walk by, you know, this pretty, pretty average street. Uh, and then the movie makes that interesting pivot too of sometimes the bus does come. And you have to be you have to be there to catch it. And maybe that's about opportunity or maybe that's about moving on. I don't know. Yeah, let's hold that for the end. But yeah, that's that's certainly factors in for sure. Um, the classified ad is that ScarJo and Thor Birch are bumming around in the week after high school. They're at the diner. Is this set in Jersey as well? I thought it was L.A., Oh, well, yeah, they're palm trees. What the hell am I talking about? Um, Classic Jersey palm trees. They're in a diner. They're reading uh, the classifieds, and they see um, the ad from Buscemi's character from uh, from Seymour that's like, hey, I picked up up something that you dropped on the train a few weeks ago. We talked about your contact lenses. You were in yellow. I was in a green cardigan. I thought we hit it off. I'd love to reconnect. Um, And they basically decide in this incredibly bored, um, you know, sort of like the kind of terrorism that you can only instigate if you are 18 and have nothing to do. If you're in like the three month span where you can keep living with Bob Balaban and you don't need a job yet, (laughs) you decide to uh, call Steve Buscemi and be like, meet me at this weird 50s diner. I am the woman in yellow. St. Jude Club at noon? No. Stars reference. Meet me at this 50s diner just so I can, what, like, 
look at you, basically. Follow you home. Follow you home. And they do. And they find Steve Buscemi uh, at a kind of weekly, a semi-regularly occurring yard sale where he has a, a box of records that he's selling in and, and, and vinyl and Americana collecting is a big thing for him. Thorberg yeah. buys a record um, of some classic uh, blues and roots music of sort of like the lead belly ilk um, and takes it home and falls kind of madly in love with this one song and sees that Seymour is maybe, I don't know what you would call it. What, what draws her back to him? Like a morbid curiosity as the ScarJo relationship grows more distant simply because ScarJo has a barista job. Well, it's almost like what I was saying before is that she's like searching for kind of an identity. So when she finds someone that has the trappings of intense interests about something, and for Steve Buscemi, it's like classic 78s and also America's racist past. Uh, she's kind of seduced by the fact that he cares enough to have curated all of this. Like she's constantly looking for something to curate herself, you know, and the movie is kind of her struggle to get there and figure out like, I know what I appreciate, but how do I make something? Yeah. And there's some, there's some funny, more like realistic, slightly broader commentary. That's funny with the Seymour character. When they when she takes him to like a blues show to meet people, and there's this, um, you know, older classic blues black musician kind of by himself, and Seymour's like, "This guy's great. Why is he opening for uh, Blues Hammer, which is like this frosted tipped like white boy um, kind of electric blues thing where they're like singing about picking cotton? It's hysterically uh, <laughs> inappropriate and uh, and intentionally so. It's a very funny scene where Blues Hammer finally throws down. Um, but yeah, she tries to introduce him to someone, and Steve Buscemi's like, "No, that would actually be more like acoustic ragtime. Like blues is always in the twelve bar structure." And you get that kind of like, "No, this guy's like way too obsessed with his own stuff to the point where like it's." I mean, he's obsessed with it, but he doesn't really even like it anymore. Like, that's the point that he's at. I think Steve Buscemi in this movie is really just the eye of the beholder. Uh, Because ultimately it kind of is, in a weird way, similar to, like, Labyrinth or Willy Wonka in the fact that the movie presupposes that to get someplace, a younger person has to have a power imbalance with an older person to like feel something for a moment in order to like get over that hump of not being fully an adult yet. This complexity actually goes to the thing I really love about this movie. There's this like super zoomed out kind of like deconstructionist thing happening in this movie about I think like what it means to be the protagonist of a story versus like what it means to be like the 12th character in a story and the burden that comes with being the lead and the alluring thing that comes with being the distant person. And this is why this is probably the best. This is the one that carries the meaning of the classified ads through to a more interesting thematic endpoint. Because when you meet Seymour, he is interesting in the same way the phrase desperately seeking Susan is interesting because you he's someone with a with a longing and then they meet him and he's someone with a passion and with a box of 78s and the more and the more you get to know him the more and the more the movie makes very very clear that he is not interesting and when he finally does the thing that you think they're going to do the whole time which is sleep together he becomes even less interesting and in the last scene you see of him in the movie he's meeting with a therapist who is bored out of her skull to be talking to Seymour and he's clearly like moved back in with his mom and meanwhile you have Thor Birch's Enid who is sort of a lost character there's not it's a, de- it's a decent performance from Thor Birch, but there's not really much to this person. It's more about kind of like what she doesn't know and who she bounces around to. And by the time you get to her boarding the bus at the end and imitating the old man at the bus stop, who's the 12th character in this movie, it's 
Zvigov has intentionally zoomed all the way out to sort of let her be this kind of distant character in this city state, cityscape of like, look, she's gone on her way to be like the background fascinating person in like a Dennis Johnson book. Like, look at her. She's actually departing the burden of protagonism to be kind of fascinating and reinvent. It's such a cool movie that way. Look at you with that Dennis Johnson reference. My God. And then I love Dave Sheridan as Doug the Nunchucks guy. He's very funny. What, what do we know Dave Sheridan from? Oh, I don't know if I know him from anything other than this. <laughs> it's very good, though. He's kind of like an early uh, the uncle from Napoleon Dynamite. Rico, yeah. Abs- 100%. <laughs> So it's good to see that's a movie on there too. Handheld uh, murder. How can we can connect murder by numbers to Napoleon Dynamite in a category so compelling for our two hundredth episode? I was just gonna say handheld weapons based like libertarianism was so much more fun in the early two thousands than it is now. For sure, yeah. Now it's just a little dark and violent. You know, ScarJo is really good in this movie, and it's interesting because she is sidelined by virtue of its construction, um, but she's really not like pushing very hard. And I, I, I heard an interview of of her and Thora and Alana Douglas, who plays the art teacher. We have to talk about about like how much they enjoyed working with Terry Svigoff. This was on the Criterion Post, I think, um, of just how like open he was to like do what ever you want, but just try to make it real. And how like cool and liberating that was for uh, the two younger actors. Um, and you can really feel ScarJo just kind of leaning into that of like, mostly you, like work kind of overtakes her character, but in this like normal yet conspicuous way of like, I'll Why? see you after work, I have to go to work. Um, are you gonna get a job? Are we gonna be able to buy cups? Um, in a superficial sense, it's crazy how like low her voice is. It's like lower at 18 than it is now. Lucy said that too when we were watching it. She's like a baritone, yeah. It's yeah. She's got a great voice. Uh and she does some incredible things with it, especially just like being low key and being like, Hey, I like I thought we had a plan. I'm gonna do that thing that we talked about doing. Meanwhile, like Thora Birch, uh, Enid is like fucking around. Yeah. Were you disappointed at all that the movie kind of like lets ScarJo go maybe a little too much before like snapping her back to the main narrative? I kind of wanted like a um, walking and talking, you know, where you're very much in both of these young women's worlds throughout the whole film. Um and that is becomes more of a conversation about their relationship. Cause I ultimately think that's the most interesting thing about this movie, not Enid, who, as you said, is like kind of a shallow character, but more like how do these two women potentially reconcile a friendship? And I don't even think it ends up answering that question. I think that's a perfectly fine desire to express. Yeah. If you want to go into their world, you kind of can't be in Terry Zwigoff's world. You know what I mean? It's right. he he's the one who controls the boundaries of this with the anti-commercialism and the random people and the alienation. And there feels like there's a real kind of downbeat kinsmanship with Susan Seidelman from Desperately Seeking Susan of like just the people you run into if you keep bouncing around and for Seidelman it's like now there's triplets outside the bar. It's the three guys from Identical Three Identical Strangers. <laughs> They're just here for some reason. And with Vygov it's like it's the guy who's on the bus to nowhere. Or it's the right. guy who's inexplicably anti-Semitic who like is at the zine store, just like the weirdos who define your social circle. But yeah, I know what you're saying. A more, um, I don't know, a slightly more open-hearted movie might take more refuge in their friendship and those characters. Well, I think it's interesting too. I mean, looking at all three of these movies, like what kind of defines their drama is and the conflict is a fundamentally like toxic female relationship. And I think it's interesting to see what um, Susan Seidelman does with that 
in that these women are like always have kind of a distance. Like they are, I mean, it's very similar to the end of single white female. They're like occupying a similar identity that the other one did because she was having problems at home, you know, but the way that Seidelman's able to keep it kind of like in the lighter space while still exploring kind of a darker subculture here. Um, you know, it was not interesting to these two other men who would rather like have them stab each other or just kind of say, huh, we're going our separate ways here. Um, but it is interesting that's like, you know, this story that's being told again and again. I mean, that's the reason we do these very specific uh, genres on this very specific podcast. We do have to give credit to the the art class scenes. Enid is taking a summer art class. And th- that for me is where all the big laughs lie. Alana Douglas is hilarious as this sort of like never was very passionate art teacher. And there's this interesting kind of moment where I... I sort of adjoined with her where the this one like nobody kid has turned in this very violent painting of someone like crushing someone else's head with a hammer. And like right before she's like, I thought it was your father. I was like, well, there's some sort of paternal read there. <laughs> I was like, oh, fuck. I'm just I'm basically just the knee jerk nobody like art critic that Zvigov is making fun of. And then the kid is like. It's from the video game. What is what video game does he say it's from? Do you remember? Oh, it's oh, something. The, the mutilating. The mutilating. Yeah. Like it's from this really cool game called the mutilating, where you crush his head with a large hammer. <laughs> yeah, um, I thought it was your father. No, that's a very good. You're right. That, those are very funny scenes. Oh, and just but when she kinda... goes in for the hug and like breaks the sculpture, and the kid with the death mask who's freaking out, it's hilarious. That is, yeah, it's very good. Well, it's it's interesting, too, about seeing this weirdo kind of, like, figure out or push these kids to, like, figure out what art is. Like, there's doodling and there's cartoons and there's, you know, the thing we kind of do for fun, as she's talking about in the first class. But then there's, like, the political and there's the, you know, the social and there's the larger implications there. And ultimately, like... She does get that out of Enid. Um, but but then again, like, the movie, that's such a weird moment to me. Like, she does end up, like, putting out that sort of racist icon, like, as a piece of pop art. Uh, but then, like, she doesn't even go to the art opening. She suffers these consequences, of course, but she doesn't... Uh, that was a weird turn for me. She finds this minstrelly kind of painting that was the former logo of the chicken place at which Steve Buscemi has some sort of middle management position, right? And he's collected this like 1950s super racist, um, like Uncle Ben times 10,000, like former logo, right? And it's like deep in his collection of like blues music and Americana stuff. And she's like, what is this dude? Are you a Klansman? And he's like, come on. No, I just collect like the weird fucked up detritus of 20th century America. And it sort of like defines who I am. And I think, and in his own interesting way, that makes Seymour an art project, right? He is interesting. What kind of person is super aware of the lineage of this company but is still like, you know what, I'll take their money so I can collect and preserve blues music from actual artists and Americans who are struggling and trying to make their voice heard and celebrate that into 2001. That person is an interesting art project. So sure. she, take, she takes it and puts it in an art show with no commentary and people are like, that's insanely racist because you had nothing to say about it. You, 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 there was no intent behind it other than like, here's art, here's something. But at the end of the day, I think what the movie is saying is then she has to turn herself into art as well by being that character who like sails off into another movie or show to be an interesting person. It's a really kind of disassociative, cool trick that Zweigab is playing with, I think. I, I, I don't disagree with that. Um, yeah, I was just... I mean, it's one of those movies where you're part of the pleasure or displeasure of watching it is kind of figuring out like what it is as it goes. Uh, and I personally like think that, you know, it's 
I mean, it's definitely of a, it, it, it works in my mind. It works because of the, I don't know, just like the richness of the, they're not even shot that in, they're not shot like beautifully. They're just shot very like specifically, you know, it's, it's almost like TV in a kind of way where there's not like a ton of movement of the camera, but then there are some really fascinating framings of things. Um, but yeah, there, there's something I like about Zweigoff's world. You know, I've, I, we've talked about bad Santa, right? We have. I like that movie a lot. I even like art school confidential, which kind of feels like where Enid would have ended up, uh, had she gone into that art school and gotten that scholarship. So what is your rating on this puppy, Noah? I think it's a soft good good. I think it's a little meandering, so I could see people being annoyed by it. Um, But for me, like, I kind of enjoyed the ride. Like, it didn't have – maybe if I'd been in the same mindset when I'd watched the first one, uh, Desperately Seeking Susan, I would have been – that would have been more game. I don't know. But this one, I I just – something about the aesthetics I, I was in. Uh, I was happy to watch these these two young women come of age uh, in a not overly serious, you know. It's kind of like lighter. Uh, what's his name? The one with uh, the one who directed that uh, Dylan Baker movie where he gets like caught as a child predator. Uh, happiness. Todd Salons. Definitely Zvigov and like, Todd Salons. If have- you like. If you're looking for like sleepy TV version of Todd Salons, it's Ghost World. Terry's Wyckoff. I think if you're the sort of person for whom the Jim Jarmusch film Patterson means something, this is sort of like the the grayer version of that. Um, yeah, man, I I really liked I liked these movies. Um, I don't know why they put me in such a like meditative mood. Maybe it's because I'm about to move on from something, but. You know, single white. What are you? What are you moving on from? You know, moving to a new place. Is it us? No, not us. We're about to do episode two hundred, which of course is murder by numbers meets what was it again? Lucky number eleven. Murder by numbers meets albino serial killers. That's right. Well, buddy, I hope that you move well and that you don't fill out any personal ads, like whatever services you need, or if you're leaving furniture or need something new, just like. Go to the store. On its single left, under 33, must enjoy the sun, must enjoy the sea, sought by single M. Mrs. Destiny, send photo to address. Is it you and me? Reply to single M, my name is Caroline, cell phone number V.